Welcome to the Family Business AudioCast on LinkedIn. I'm R. Adam Smith, creator of this AudioCast series. I've been an entrepreneur, investment banker, and board leader for over 25 years. I want to thank the registrants for joining live today on LinkedIn. It's great to see many familiar faces and many new ones. A bit in this AudioCast series, family business is a passion of mine, having grown up in a family of entrepreneurs and I've engaged for two decades in a vast range of dialogues, deals, investments, and boards with fascinating family enterprises around the globe. I founded the Family Business AudioCast to offer a useful platform for listeners to hear from industry veterans, academics, and leaders, whether you're a family office or alternate worth individual owning companies, building a multifamily office, or focused on governance, culture, corporate change. I hope these conversations will be enlightening. Today, we welcome Angela Robles, my friend. Angela, welcome to our AudioCast series. It's great to have you today. Adam, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be on. Angela Robles is the founder and chairman of Angela Robles Enterprises, which includes as its family office holdings, now Family Office TV, SFO Continuity, and Family Office Masterclass. Angela has advised, created, and reimagined over 20 family offices for the world's most successful families for two decades. Angela guides his clients on creating and sustaining generational dynamic and engaging family offices that are humanly wise, cognitively flexible, forward-looking, and organizationally robust. Angela was also earlier the founder of the longstanding Family Office Association. FOA has grown to become one of the most successful membership organizations dedicated to family offices. Recently in 2023, he sold his final interest in the firm, and now we're here today. Angel also is the author of many books and masterclass papers, including the Effective Family Office, available on Amazon. All right, so we'll get going. Today, our focus is on the family office, which is also a family business. Angel, tell us a bit about you. We'll dig into the questions. Yeah, that's a great question. So you are correct in your comment, Adam, that a lot of people maybe don't quite understand. Often wealth is created from a substantial family business that has a liquidity event. And now the family office effectively becomes the binding glue, the legacy of that family. And to me, that relates to the family office equates to family continuity. So yes, this comes back in terms of being a family business. My challenge is how come there's not the level of rigor and institutional focus commonly in most family offices? Most family offices will fail. Now, (laughs) that's a bit of a stark comment because given a long enough timeline, effectively everything, quote unquote, fails. But I think you know generally what I mean They're not held to the same rigor and standard. They're not necessarily great. And they rarely will go by the time that the wealth creator is interested in continuing or discontinuing the family office. Maybe one more comment, Adam, because I think there may be some people that are very fluid in the family business, but maybe not quite as much in the family office. So to me, a single family office, aka SFO, is an entity. And usually for profit, we may get to that, created by one family of great wealth with, let's call it people and resources dedicated internally and exclusively to that family. The family business really now is 
continuity in terms of inside the family. Why do most family offices fail? Is it because of a bad decision on money and taxes? Well, over time, that is important and could play into it. But usually it relates to a lack of synchronization, a lack of governance, which basically how joint decisions are made in the family, a lack of capacity and capability, which equates to competency in the rising generation, by far the number one determinant, both within the family and the family office, is the quality of the people. People are the number one determinant to the success of the family office. Henceforth, you do have to look at it as being potentially a people problem. So we've talked about legacy a lot, you and me, and we talked about the the specialness of family uh, firms. Um, you use the word uniqueness uh, when you're thinking about the enterprise, and you've had a lot of experience in not only creating family offices, but also helping them sustain and grow. You recently had uh, Dr. Dennis Jaffe uh, talking about sustainability and legacy uh, as well. Talk about the principles around sustainability that you share when you're advising families. Yeah, that's a great question. I do see someone that I know <laughs> sent me a text who happens to be listening in. Angelo, could you give some clarity because you kind of left it on a hook? What do you mean for profit? Single family offices aren't quote unquote for profit. At least here in the U.S., the way to properly structure a family office, going by the lender versus IRS case from late 2017 that came to a head, where one of the rare circumstances where the family won, if you look to get certain deductions as simply a private investor, you're going to be limited to a certain point. But if you structure your single family office technically as a for-profit entity, meaning it's a structural management company, LLC, or corporation, structured in a domicile that has an intertwined relationship with the assets where it's getting compensated, quote unquote, that allows a level of tax deductibility that could be very substantial. The business of the family becomes the family. The greatest threat to the family, well, I think that's pretty obvious to the large majority of your audience with how I'm building it up. Effectively, it is the family. So how do you advise families and how do you implement strategies to have them have success in the family and the family office? If I had a top three, and the first is always people, but how come there's so little focus on a, what I would call a chief people officer, not some PC HR junk, but really someone obsessed to building greatness in the SFO? It's people, technology, and systems. I could waver back and forth on two or three and put systems too. So here's something that I would like to have everyone think of. It's not a hard benchmark, and I'm using that in parentheses, to radically improve in a family office going from mediocrity to great. Some in the audience have heard me state, you could take the last man on the bench of an NBA team. There is nothing they could do to be Michael Jordan, to be LeBron James. The good news for you or those interested in the family office space, it's not that level of inherent talent or capability to rise from mediocrity to good and good to great, and then possibly truly exceptional top 1%. I believe it is a formula. 
It is a process. And I think in relatively short order. Now, part of that's going to depend on competency and discipline and the focus of the family and their willingness to, again, bring on the right people. But I think it's very, very possible to effectively and rather bluntly go from mediocrity to good to great. So this goes back to a question that I probably didn't fully answer before. Why family offices fail? Primarily, it's going to come down to governance. Now, governance is a people issue. So it goes back to what I said before. So rather bluntly, the family and the family office have a level of incompetency. And part of that relates to not identifying blind spots and ego, which happens to all of us who have had some success getting in the way. I think the family, Adam, has to answer what is the purpose behind the wealth. Now, I'm going to quote someone who's a married and family member and also runs the family office, and it's a multi-billion dollar family. His name is Scott Papette, and he wrote something for the Family Firm Institute that was called 60-30-10, meaning 60% of the time of the family office is focused on money, 30%, let's broadly call it legal, and 10% on family. But if the biggest threat to the family is the family, then who in the family office is focused 100% of their time. Why is it only 10%? And I think Scott's 10% is actually being a little generous. To me, this relates to the other important area of, if you want to call it a hire or a focus of the family office, is what I would call a chief learning officer. Uh, That is an opportunity to help teach capacity and capability that leads to competency. These are all things that are integral in terms of Having the family business now is the family office and a family continuity, as it should be, is commonly the number one goal. Yet you have to ask the question, why are most family offices mired in mediocrity? And I think some of the, again, in little sound bites over the last three or four minutes, are reasons that could be worked on and how any family and family office, I think, could greatly improve and rather quickly. Let's come back to purpose um, because when a family firm has significant wealth to then create a family office, which can then become a more effective organization as a for-profit, but also add nonprofit elements around the for-profit, right? As a, as a platform. So let's come back to purpose uh, initially because purpose for family firms relates to how they view the future, right? How long are they going to continue to build that business instead of selling it and gets into the issue of, of legacy before even you talk about people. So you've had wonderful people you've interviewed across private equity, corporates, public companies. I noticed you had uh, Jamie McLaughlin, who's an expert, as well as Jay Hughes, another expert on generational transfer. So Thinking about these interesting, important people over the years, maybe share some comments on how you see the purpose and passion drive the organization's future and also back to governance. Like, How does that focus on purpose and passion and legacy result in the structure of governance? Well, I think that's very important. To me, I go by some of the work that even someone like Nick uh, von Einern has spoken about, and he was a guest on my program recently as well, in terms of being in synchronicity, I guess is a word for it. 
But I go back to, I have more of a hardcore financial background. So I do get that those that could be a little bit more linear and believe that, well, the family's rich. They, of course, want to get richer. Uh, that misses the boat as to why most families shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations. That's not to say that money and legal issues are not important. They absolutely are. But when you look at governance, which is what is the purpose of your wealth and is the issue of generational legacy, aka through family continuity, important, by far at the point of liquidity and creating a family office, it's really going to come down to governance. Now, getting some standard governance off the shelf, oh, I realize a family constitution and mission. There's no right or wrong in governance structure though, right? You can have just bigger or better, but is there a right or wrong in terms of governance structure? It usually tends to be top down and that's a big problem. Now I do understand, especially in a newly created family office, meaning a liquidity event where the family may be not great in volume and numbers, and maybe the children are very young. It's very tempting to basically say that I'm the final decision maker that keeps governance very simple. And most people, they're going to take the approach a little bit of letting their blind spots and ego get in the way and the simplicity of saying that when they're old enough, I'll begin to incorporate them, but they don't have the life experiences yet. Therefore, I'm going to do top down. I could tell you, having known thousands of family offices and hundreds and hundreds of families and studying the great research of uh, Dennis Jaffe, who you mentioned in his hundred year you know, plan and what he's seen over the course generationally around the world and JUs and many others, uh, Jim Grubman and Von Aynard and others who I mentioned before, uh, Christian Stewart's another one, you know, really talented people. And the fact that a lot of you in finance, legal and accounting really miss and you're totally missing the boat and it would be a huge advantage you would have effectively within that community and within your industry is to completely understand the value of governance, the importance of how joint decisions are made and how that really is going to define the purpose and success of that family moving forward. It should be from the bottom up. It should be more inclusive. I can't tell you whether that number is an odd number like three, although that is a number in boards and committees that I would usually recommend. That is going to be subjective to various branches within the family, the size of the family. And again, this is going to go beyond the scope of perhaps our more shorter discussion today. But the family and family office will not succeed together as a family without governance that is done right, however that's defined, and how it has the capacity to adapt. That's going to be critical. You mentioned my interviews in my family office TV. And yes, Jay Hughes was on this summer. You mentioned Dennis Jaffe, Von Aynern. And even I'm thinking of a guest I had on earlier this week, Rebecca Patterson. It's not all governance, although governance is important, but she's the former chief of strategy for Bridgewater. So geopolitical thinkers, uh, people like David Hunter, who's a very well-known economist, people like Green Beret and former investment banker E.M. Burlingame on geopolitical issues. And perhaps among my most common well-known guest, a frequent guest of Tim Ferriss, and that would be Adam Robinson, who's a brilliant thinker, legendary chess icon who trained under Bobby Fischer, and a problem solver. 
So for me, I like that. I like people that may not be directly in the family office community, but they're intellectual, they're creative thinkers. They know how to critically think and they know how to solve problems. Sometimes in the family office community, our nose is too close to the action. We become a historian, which is valuable, but we're not a revolutionary. It's too vanilla, it's too down the middle. There's not new nuances being forged in the family office world. And to me, I find that intriguing. Let's come back to legacy, however. Um, there are five to 10,000 family offices in the world now that are known. And most of those family offices are formed from the liquidity from a single company, right? And then the family grows and they continue to build the people and the scale and the board, as you say, or even create a, a, a multifamily office or have other other clients or even other companies that they purchase. The direction and scale of family businesses all over the map, isn't it quite varied in terms of the focus on legacy and purpose? Because if the family is really just G1 and and just the owners, right, and they're not involving their children or they don't want to, then it's more of a financial animal. It's not really a broader corporate ecosystem for the broader family if, if they're not involving the family or if they don't have children. So you've talked to wealthy, successful business people like Peter Thiel and Stephen Cohen. These gentlemen have family offices or sometimes they look to build them into bigger organizations or sometimes they just use them as a financial vehicle, right? Talk, talk, talk about the range of, of, of purpose. Yeah, like I think basically what you're getting to is are the majority of what we would call a single family office, are they really more private investment vehicles or entities for the family? Exactly. The answer to that is yes. And that's not necessarily a bad thing in its silo. The fact that you have wealth, money is going to be important in terms of capital preservation and growing, and that you have an entity totally dedicated to you 24-7, and this still is going to need governance, and still people are going to be the number one factor in its success or not. But you have to go back and look at what is the end goal? What is the purpose of the wealth? And if the purpose of the wealth is only the wealth, then that's not going to be sustainable. So this goes back to what I said earlier in that, and you're correct, they're really not what I would consider a pure single family office with the definition of family continuity and much deeper than investing. And those family investment vehicles, for the most part, will not last past the generation of the person that created it. There will be some that may morph into being more of a true family office, and there will be some that may morph into becoming more of a commercial enterprise as an investment vehicle or an MFO. And there's nothing wrong with that if that's the direction the family wants to take. But broadly speaking, you are correct. A lot of people in the world of finance, both in Greater Greenwich and New York and the hedge fund community and more of the VC and angel community in Silicon Valley and around the world, they often don't quite get it. They're a little bit linear. They're focused on money. And I understand it. But they're not necessarily building true bottom-up governance. They're not engaging for the value of family continuity. And they're not engaging, even if they're a younger rising generation in the family, there's going to be a disconnect. And again, I've seen it happen and all the figureheads that we mentioned before. It's inevitable that wealth, for a variety of reasons, it will collapse. 
Now, again, everything collapses with a long enough time frame. I get it. But it's not going to provide the legacy to the family and society that that wealth creator might have originally wanted. Right. Well, family businesses and enterprises are are quite large. I mean, globally, they're probably 70, 80 percent of the entire GDP of the world. A lot of people don't understand the scale of family held, family closely held businesses that are held by a family or a broader family ecosystem. Just back to the MFO, talk a bit about what you're seeing at this at the larger MFO levels of more proactively managed MFOs that aren't just wealth management. So if you take out the wealth management firms, just share a bit of your views on the significant expansion of the MFO organization, let's say over 20 billion. And where do you see that going? And perhaps do you see some of these larger scale organizations growing into bigger corporate holding companies, let's say, like more like a Berkshire Hathaway's? Adam, as I'm going to a caveat before I try to answer, I am effectively, let's go with the word 100% focused on single family offices. I've been doing it for decades. Right. I'm extremely narrow. Now, of course, there's going to be some crossover into the MFO community. But I would look at the before mentioned Jamie McLaughlin, who I've known for many a year, kind of the way that I am to single family offices, I would say that he is with his focus on the multifamily office. I do agree with him. There's only about 50 to 60 in the US real, fitting the definition of more than just an investment vehicle for the family being an MFO. But for those that may be thinking, Angelo, it's just a family office. What's the difference? Like, you're kidding me. A single family office, as I defined before, is an entity with the right people and resources totally dedicated just to that one family. An MFO is a marketing term mm -hmm. that generally is an enterprise that is looking to take in more AUM. And the level of services they provide are going to be dispersed among a variety of families. That does not mean that there's not some that are very, very good. That does not mean that most single family offices are good. I already defined, well, by mathematical nature, most are average and to me that's unacceptable. So if you, if you don't care about greatness in your single family office, like why have a single family office? But unfortunately, in giving greater depth to your question, uh, I don't think I'm gonna be the right person for that since my focus is effectively on billionaires, the super rich, and their single-family offices. Mm -hmm. Now, back to the scale of that, though, just briefly for the listeners to understand the scale of family enterprises, which is a very tricky space to get data on because there's no official measurement of family firms and family enterprises over time. But ENY and St. Gallen did a research that I just wrote about recently on familybusiness.org, finding some really good data in 2023 they measured the top 50 global family enterprises and found that they generate $8 trillion of revenue. And they're actually generally quite healthy. Um, and just in the US alone, for example, there are 37 million family businesses in, in the US. So we'll come back to finish up today. Certainly we can't get into tax because we'll have a longer discussion and half of the audience will drop. So we'll, maybe we'll do that later. <laughs> Taxes has a way of doing that, Adam, of course. Yeah, exactly. Um, but on the call today, we, we will repurpose this uh, for the future, but we see some friends in consulting and tax. We have some former guests. I see Ruby who worked with LVMH. Drew's working with the family investments in his sports space. 
It's, uh, and Alex, it's wonderful to see some of your old friends here and Martin and, and Jamie over in St. Louis. So thank you for joining. Uh, share with us some of your special stories from your in-depth conversations and mentoring with clients, like just sh- share a couple couple more stories, sure. a couple accolades. And I think that probably what's going to be best for the audience is given that I know, and I've been very fortunate in my career, a number of people that are incredibly successful in their family offices. And given that I love to research, for me, traveling to meet with them, developing friendships, smoking cigars, which the audience knows that I do love to do, enjoying a good dinner or scotch and getting to know them more personally. Having a family and having a child myself allows for me the capability of understanding the importance of legacy and of governance. But if I had to share some things from some incredible people, the most contrarian thing is not the opposite of the crowd, but it's the thing for yourself. So among the most common things I hear from billionaires, including my interview with Michael Saylor, who went to MIT and is very smart, think for yourself. Again, think for yourself. Understand this. What gives you opportunity is other people doing dumb things. I remember a very wickedly smart investor who came from nothing and is worth hundreds of millions of dollars, he told me investing is about four things. Discipline, controlling your emotions, which many of us have a hard time to do. Having an edge, I think that's a very important one, and managing bankroll. Now, I also, in an interview that was more private for my members of SFO Continuity, did an interview with a 30-year veteran working in a family office And although I may want to mix up his three in terms of what I would consider, but I asked him, what are the three main functions with your experience having worked for, I think it's three different single family offices. And he said, managing the stability and performance of the family's financial assets was number one. Proactively protecting the family brand was number two. And I did like the third, ensuring character within the family. Now, I know some may say, well, as we finally got to character, that's great. The number one thing that a parent or grandparent of wealth in their lineage with their family could teach, in my opinion, I'm glad he stated it and it popped in my head, is character. And yes, I do believe as a single family office, not only should you as an executive, quote unquote, have character, but I think there is an impact in your capacity and capability with the rising generation to help with that. If I had to leave you with maybe two final kind of comments from things I'm hearing from these amazing people, or at least amazing financially, then hopefully they're doing something beneficial in society. Avoiding stupid mistakes is more important than being smart. So I think that families, and this is, have to look at, again, the family is already rich. You have to think of risk identification risk analysis, and then optimal risk responses to mitigate the risk across domains. It's others, not just me, that have spoken about financial risk, including liquidity, operational risk, and then the hardest one that we touched on, of course, a bit with synchronization and governance, and that is going to be behavioral risk. There is a project that I'm working on, Adam, It basically is my research and insights effectively with literally the world's most successful families 
about seven billionaires so far have allowed me to do a 200 question questionnaire. I mean, I must drive them crazy. And for me, that gives me the insight in terms of what drives them and what are some mindset and traits that made them successful. And I don't know if we're going to have the time to get into those, but certainly maybe the next time we hold a conversation and I could up that number to maybe 15 or 20 that have done a 200 question, both in person and some of it written in email, um, that would be exciting. I'd love to do that. Really sharing some free Cuban cigars and letting them see that your beard is real in person. <laughs> it is realer in person, of I'm course. Sure. Um, but it's it's formidable. Uh, thank you for bringing up character and mistakes, and we'll wrap up soon. But I think there's a quote I, I remember Oscar Wilde said, experience is the, simply the name we give our mistakes. All right, we'll we'll wrap up. Any any further comments uh, as we as we finish our our chat today? Well, again, I want to be respectful of the time. Uh, the audience knows that on my family office TV and my interviews, I'm kind of known for my hour and a half to two and a half hour interviews. I guess on that stage, I try to be a little bit of the the Joe Rogan in terms of creativity and debt and mainly length relative in my interviews. I would say a subject that I know that I have pushed but I think is gravely important for those listening to understand that maybe there's not enough focus on besides things like character and governance and people are the number one factor in terms of driving the success. I'm assuming in a bit of family business, but definitely within a family office, I would look at what's going on with what I call the velocity of destruction, the massive challenges we have going on around the world, the massive deficit in this country, the threat to dollar hegemony on certain economy. One day, one day, Heather, may be taxation on unrealized capital gains. And I think this comes down again to continuity within the family in the event of crisis, which really only comes from going from fragile to resilient to being anti-fragile. I think the work of Nassim Taleb and Mark Spitznagel at Universa, I think is just groundbreaking and wonderful. And that does relate to what I said earlier, not just character, but also capacity and capability in terms of becoming competent. And that comes down to adaptability. So there's lots of problems out there. You could put your head in the sand or you could understand what those problems are and develop the capacity to adapt, to address them. And you may not always thrive financially. There may be setbacks financially, but you grow stronger from crisis. You're not destroyed from it you continue and grow. Now, again, you know, we're not going to have the time to do a deeper dive into that, but I do appreciate your wonderful questions and the great work that you're doing in the community as being a leader in family businesses. I enjoy your content and I learned so much and I've seen that you've had Martin Roll and so many others and, uh, and uh, you know, Christina, yeah. you know, yeah. Wing and others that are just wonderful yeah. deep thinkers and thought leaders. So, Continue the great work that you're doing. I learned so much from it. And I look forward to hopefully imparting value to the audience on my platforms and social media and my programs that I do at AngeloRobles.com. Thank you. Yes, you can find Angela at LinkedIn, of course. Thank you to the platform and supporting this and also on his website and, and Twitter, or you can email him directly as, as well. 
I appreciate the support and the commentary of anti-fragile and that we all could use some, some determination. I would say that Nassim Tella's book on the black swan is fantastic. And underrated is the work of the universe founder, his friend, Mark Spitznagel. That guy is brilliant. He might be a little crazy, but crazy in a good way. But again, it's up to you to be competent. Don't rest on your laurels. How the world worked a year ago or five years ago, it's different now. This is identify your blind spots, move your ego aside, and you may have to put in two or three hours a day to keep up and to be competent and develop your Rolodex to be a real force in the community and to be someone who provides value. If you're working in a family office, work to be great, be incredible. Why don't you want to be top 1%? If everyone was striving to that, it'd be very, very, very hard. (laughs) There's only one in a hundred that are going to be 1%. But unfortunately, the benchmark, or fortunately for some, the benchmark is so low. Many of you could do it. Yes, that's inspiring. Thank you. Well, I'd like to thank all the attendees today on the Family Business Audiocast and our guest, Angela Robles, founder and chairman of his company, which is growing, Angela Robles Enterprises. Thank you, Angela, for today. Thank you. The pleasure is all mine. This is R. Adam Smith signing off. Stay tuned for the next episode of the Family Business Audiocast. Only.